one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. In February, Green Left's Alex Bainbridge travelled to Turkey, where he met with Hishya Erso, a member of parliament for the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, HDP, representing Diyarbakir. To start off with, uh, it seems to me Turkey wants to present itself to the world as being part of Europe, democratic, concerned about human rights. This is the image they want to present. Yeah. At the same time, there's authoritarian crackdown on the political left, on the yeah. Kurdish community. Yeah. Can you describe to an international audience how you see Turkey's, the role of the Turkish state and Turkey's role in, in the world? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the kind of democracy we have in Turkey is only very limited and quite formal. By that I mean we have some formal elections, right? We, we have a parliament and we do have some local governments which uh, have been severely undermined. And the parliament is mostly dysfunctional. Uh, we, uh, over the last few years, we have been also dealing with a, a very strange, bizarre uh, political system that is called the Turkish-type presidential system, uh, in which uh, all powers are monopolized in the hands of the president of the country. We don't have any separation of powers. We don't have any independent judiciary. So it is a, a, an institutional um, uh, uh, instability now mm-hmm. that is characterizing the whole uh, political landscape. So of course Turkey wants to promote uh, its image as one of a pluralistic democratic country, but particularly over the last four years, by that I mean the, 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 the abortive coup that happened in July 2016, um, and the government, those who are in power, they have been implementing a very repressive and unlawful campaign against any critical voice in the country, not only the HDP. Of course, my party is the second biggest opposition party at the parliament, and uh, we do represent the majority of Kurdish people in the country, as well as all the marginalized peoples of Turkey, this can be the left, the Alevi community, the Armenians, Assyrians, uh, the non-Muslim populations, uh, so the disabled people, we do have a very powerful kind of feminist agenda too as a party, Uh, uh, the youth and women, they do have their autonomous assemblies, they make their own decisions, so uh, in a way the HDP has been trying to kind of carry all the uh, those groups at the margins of the society to the center, right? Mm-hmm. Those communities that have been historically repressed and marginalized and excluded from the political landscape. So we are bringing all of them back into the state. In that way we have been putting, it's kind of a shock therapy for the, <laughs> the Turkish kind of establishment, which has been based upon uh, kind of foundational exclusions of all this like Kurdish, Alevi and Armenian and Greek and other populations as well as the poor people and women and the youth and other marginalized sectors of the society. So, but, but the fight is not simply against the HDP, it is a bigger one. The civil society in general is under uh, crackdown. More than 5,000 
academics they have lost their jobs more than 100,000 people they lost their jobs were dismissed without any court decision it is just through government decrees under emergency rule which was formally in effect between 2016 and 2018 it was abolished then in 2018 but most emergency powers were later included into the national legislation. So we are living under a permanent emergency rule, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, in practice, nothing has changed, really. So this is the kind of general climate we are in. It is a transitional period. It is a very violent transitional period. Those who are in power are so scared that they can lose their power. That is why the state and the government has been kind of waging a war against the people. It's a very interesting moment. In, in, in the history of Turkish and Kurdish politics here. So in addition to this, Turkey is also in a mess with the relations with Syria and with Libya. Turkey is actively fighting two wars now, actually. The parliament is mostly silent about this. The only HDP has been opposing to all these wars Turkey is trying to wage you know, at the regional level. Uh, we have a huge economic crisis now in the country and it is deepening. People are tired of But then they are scared to express their kind of uh, feelings, their ideas, because the moment you start talking, then you know you need to pay a dearly price. And the only organized group that is paying that price and taking the risk and standing against this you know, authoritarian kind of tendency, very powerful, is, unfortunately, I'm saying this, unfortunately, the HDP. It's not that we are heroes, we are not heroes. But individually, we are not scared. I mean, as an individual, I'm not scared, really. I don't have fears about what's going to happen to me. And I may go to prison and other things may happen. Uh, already, we have our two former co-chairs, several members of parliament, over 50 elected Kurdish mayors, and a total of more than 5,000 people, members, associates, and administrators of the HDP are already in prison. I can go to prison, too. So all these people, we don't have a personal fear, really, what's going to happen to us, our families personally. But we do have fears about the future of our peoples and the future of this country. Mm -hmm. If we cannot stop this authoritarian kind of rule, uh, uh, and, and we think that there will be more kind of instability in the country, it won't be the rich and those who are in power who will pay the price. At one point, they may even leave the country. It will be the people, the actual people, who are trying to live on the margins of the society, those people are going to pay the price. That is why we do have fears for them, and that's why we, we assume a certain role and responsibility, the HTP, I mean, we do have a very central place in, in, in uh, Turkish and Kurdish politics. Uh, in last uh, local elections, we had them in... Uh, March uh, 2019, uh, and there were the repeated Istanbul elections in June as well. So we were kind of the kingmaker party. Uh, we we supported the, the kind of broader opposition, and and and, and we made Erdogan to pay a dear dear price for what he has been doing to you know the Kurds and other people that we represent over the last four years. So that was kind of our kind of very swift and organized revenge. It was a political response. So we undermined the, the AKP, which is the ruling party, and MHP, which is the kind of ally, the ultra-nationalists. 
So we somehow undermine them. And now we are getting prepared for the final battle. Uh, and the political battle. And, and we, 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 we are both you know, well prepared and we are very optimistic that in the first elections uh, we will find a solution. Yeah, and when is the election problem. expected? I mean, normally they are scheduled for, uh, let me see, June 2023. That's the normal schedule. But, uh, and then we may have early elections, there is a lot of pressure on the government, the country is unstable, the problems that the country is facing in Syria are very, very challenging, and the economy is not recovering. Uh, I mean, if we don't have kind of a revolutionary kind of uh, situation now, it's mostly because over the last three years, and by means of emergency rule powers, the government has been repressing the society very brutally, right? But they can't maintain this situation for long, because, and this is how it works, and this society is full of conflicts and contradictions. For a while, you may be able to somehow repress them, but at one point, it's going to explode. Is what we saw, I mean, during the Arab Spring in many, many countries, in Tunisia, I mean, in Egypt, in Morocco, in almost everywhere, now Lebanon and Iraq and Iran, everywhere. And not only in the Middle East, in many parts of the world, I mean, people are coming to a point where they are saying, enough is enough. So I can tell you this much, that in Turkey there has been kind of an accumulation, a constant accumulation of, of, of rage, of... of um, not only rage, though, I mean, not only anger, right, frustration, of course, that is being accumulated there. But at the same time, people, until very recently, they didn't believe that there was a kind of way to get rid of the kind of status quo, the establishment. But now, particularly after the local elections in 2019, March elections, uh, where the opposition in general actually won all the big municipalities like Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, the whole Mediterranean coast and Kurdish provinces. So it was a shocking experience for the government. And so now people actually now also believe that. It's not that they are just oh, being victimized and they are angry and they can't do anything. They have learned that when they can come together, then they can win actually. That's what we, what we did in the recent elections. And so now we are getting prepared for our final battle, we'll see. So tell me more about what it's like, life in the Kurdish majority regions of Turkey. Like yesterday we were told that even the Kurdish language could not be spoken in Parliament, and so the language is suppressed. Can you explain more yeah. about what it's like for everyday life for Kurdish people in the Kurdish majority okay, that is. Uh, thank you for the question, and I think that question can be best responded also by by looking into the situation of local governments, because lo it is the local governments actually who do kind of interact people on a daily basis. So, I mean, in Turkey as a policy, since the foundation of this Republic, Kurdish language and culture, of course, has been a major, perceived as a major threat to the national existence and security of the Turkish Republic. It's very strange. I mean, why a language and a culture I mean, by the way, by profession, I'm an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, actually. And I don't understand why a language and culture is perceived kind of as a threat. It's a language, it's a culture, for God's sake. The problem is, I think, the politicization of language and culture as kind of the main marker of national identity. And when Turkey was established in the early uh, 20th century, 1923, to be precise, and the formative years were like 1923 until 
1940s, which happened to overlap with the rise of Hitler and other fascists and Nazi and all those you know ideologies, the crazy ideologies, the madness of modernity, right? I mean, so and and, and Turkey was developing its institutions and its kind of foundational ideology within that kind of a, a broader political climate. So they came up with this stupid culturalist notion of national identity, a, a racist notion of cultural identity. So this is only one culture, one language, one race, this, this kind of oneness of almost everything. But the problem was that the whole country was based on the kind of the remnants of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, 72 different nations they live in. So what they did, they, to be honest, like, this is a historical thing, it's not just about the Republic, it started before that. They killed and genocided the Armenians. Right? They removed the Greeks with like population kind of exchanges, right? And the small Jewish community was further marginalized. Many of them left after, of course, the establishment of Israel. And the Alevi people were genocided several times. The Kurds staged like a total of close to 30 rebellions. All of them were brutally repressed, right? You see, and then they established a country that is based on the foundational exclusion of all of these non-Turkish and non-Muslim, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, elements, these, these sectors. So then, like pure Turkishness. So this is the founding ideology, and that is why the Kurds could not uh, have kind of any space, any medium for. Uh, cultural linguistic ex expression. Leave aside political expression, I mean some share of sovereign power, right? Leave that aside. So that is the general situation, but with the local government since 2000, 1999, when we first came to power, it's like 21 years ago, and of course the municipalities tried to implement various kind of cultural and linguistic programs here and there. Oftentimes, not through formal kind of um, institutions and organs, but there was kind of a, a generalized interest in the Kurdish language and culture, because to promote the language and culture, I mean, you need some institutional and economic uh, support. Otherwise, I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, I'm sure, like in Australia, you have all those indigenous people, and if you do not support them, it won't be that easy for them to protect and promote their culture and identity and language, particularly under this kind of very, very um, aggressive uh, tendencies of globalization everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but the problem is, uh, since 2016, uh, almost all of Kurdish municipalities won and run by my party, the HTP, uh, they, ha they have been seized, their mayors removed totally unlawfully and sent to prison, and those municipalities, in 2016, 90 four of our municipalities were forcibly taken and then some bureaucrats were appointed appointed governors actually right they were they replaced our elected mayors so it is this is a mentality i think this is internal colonialism so turkish government is appointing uh, non-elected governors turkish governors to rule kurdish cities that are normally normally, run by elected Kurdish mayors. So this is colonialism, yes, yeah, you, you see. So, if, for example, in my 
uh, in the town, Diyarbakir, where I represent, I mean, the population of the city is more than one million. We get more than 500,000 votes, close to 600,000 votes. Um, and then in 2014, we had the, our co-mayors. By the way, the HDP is the only party that uh, implements uh, the co-mayor system. We have one male, one female. In 2014, we had 102 municipalities, and in 2016, right after the, the declaration of uh, emergency rule, they removed unlawfully all of our mayors and they sent them to prison. Still one is in prison, one is in exile somewhere in Europe, had to flee. And then, between 2016 and 2019, uh, we didn't have any, any municipalities. It was mainly these Turkish governors, appointed governors, uh, ruling Kurdish cities. We don't have any kind of self-government, that's the major issue. This is actually one way we think empowering these governments, local governments, some degree of autonomy may help to also respond to the broader political issue that we call the Kurdish question. But the government is just destroying every single local Kurdish institution that we have won through all this kind of struggle over decades, over a century actually. 2019, March, so we, for example, in the Arbaker, we, we, we won by 63% of the vote. And the governing party was like, I don't know, around 20-something percent. But that's what they did. They, again, they removed our mayor, sent him to prison, and then replaced him with some governor. And this is Turkish colonialism, par excellence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but, but this is uh, kind of... Uh, and they have done a similar rule in the early years of the Turkish Republic. Right? If you ask me, like, what is happening, I think those who are in power, the Turkish elite, they literally don't know what they are doing with the Kurdish question, other than attacking, killing, destroying, torturing. And not only in Turkey, but also in Syria, you are seeing there has been several kind of invasions like in certain parts in Syria, but the Kurdish territories. Turkey has never fought the ISIS there or any other group. Seriously. Even when they entered into ISIS territories, there was no fight. ISIS just left the place to them, right? But it was Afri, Isterkani, Strabiad, Kurdish-dominated territories under Turkish attack. Turkey is now formally sponsoring all the terrorist groups in Idlib, for example, a NATO member, a member of the Council of Europe, and the whole Western countries. I mean, I, I really sometimes I can't understand them. They are so hypocritical. They are seeing a member of the NATO and of Council of Europe, one of their key allies, is supporting all kinds of nasty, crazy extremist groups in Syria, huh? mostly because they are scared of another refugee crisis. Maybe all these refugees, brown people, may pour into European countries. They are so scared. See, so that is kind of the, the situation now. But, I mean, these are, of course, mostly on the, say, the, 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 the negative side, that Turkey is fighting a war against the Kurds on either side of the border. Even the Kurds in Iraq are a threat. Because here, the, the idea is, like Turkey, from the very beginning, as I, I have already said, uh, uh, has viewed the Kurds as, as the main national security threat. Foundationally, it's an existential issue. Like that the Kurds exist and they do have certain cultural and political rights 
is so unbearable to Turkey, right? Why? And I was thinking, like, what if, for example, the Kurds speak their language? What's your problem? Right? Why? What if the Kurds do have some autonomous region in Syria? Why do you feel so much threatened? They feel threatened because Turkey is based upon the exclusion of the Kurds, the non-existence of the Kurds. For 100 years, it was like that. But the kind of status quo established after the First and Second World Wars, the status quo that buried the Kurds beneath its, you know, uh, thing. So that is gone. So the, the, the Middle East as a region is being transformed now. And that's why the, from the cracks and splits here and there, all this mess in the Middle East, the Kurds are come of, kind of coming back to the political stage. It's kind of the, the, the return of the repressed. So they are here. 100 years, they killed, tortured, removed, displaced, exiled the Kurds. But we are going nowhere, we are here, we are in the Middle East. And now the region is being restructured, right, in Iraq, in Syria, everywhere, in Turkey, everywhere. So, and the only thing that we want this time, when new kind of political systems hopefully will be established in these geographies, we just want some pluralistic, democratic, fair political systems where the Kurds, and not just the Kurds, but other marginalized populations, they can, some degree of political representation, and some form of dignified life. That is not too much to ask for, right? I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.